But Heavenly Father, you are good to us. Um, and, and whether our circumstances are good or not doesn't matter. You are good. And we will trust you. We will lean into you. We will believe in you. And so God, I pray today that you would speak great truth that uh, would stick into our hearts. Uh, God, if these folks walk out of here and forget me, they have lost absolutely nothing. But if they walk out of here and forget you, they've lost everything. So I pray it's you that they remember and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start with just a story. Like I said, I've been youth ministry a long time, and, uh, and, and I love it and do it, and there's been a lot of interesting things. I do want to tell you about one girl in particular, um, and, and her story is a very interesting one. She, she grew up with a very verbally abusive father. He was an alcoholic and, uh, and verbally abused, physically abused the, the sons, verbally abused the daughters that were there, beat up her mom uh, pretty regularly. He would cheat on her, leave the evidence in the car for her to clean up. Uh, just not, not a great guy. So at 16, this girl decided she just needed to leave home because that home was no longer a great place. So she moved in with her 21-year-old boyfriend because that's a great decision. And, um, and so moved in with him. 17 was pregnant, had a miscarriage. Um, 18 moved out because he was being abusive to her um, and left and went to go work at a restaurant in a hotel. And that was her job that she had. Uh, she met a, a customer, just this regular customer that would come in. Um, they started dating, and they decided on Valentine's Day that it would be a great way to express their love for each other by getting in the backseat of the car. And so that's what they did, and she ended up pregnant. And, and what are they going to do? What are they going to do about it? Um, the, the man that, that got her pregnant was living with his aunt, and his aunt's like, she is trash. You need to get rid of her. Um, she is a worthless girl. All she'll do is bring you down, so get rid of her. He didn't, um, stayed together, and at, at six months was put on bed rest um, from complications of her pregnancy. At seven months, had an emergency C-section, um, rushed her into the hospital, um, cut her open, took the baby, two-pound baby girl um, they took, took her straight to the, to the ICU, um, and 16 hours later, the baby died. Little girl never got to hold the baby, never got to say, I love you to the baby, nothing, taken away and, and died uh, 16 hours later. Um, anger, hurt, sadness, confusion, frustration, every emotion you can imagine, this girl was feeling it because she lost this baby and, and didn't know how to get her mind around it. All she could ask in her head is this, what could I have done to save that baby's life? What could I have done to make a difference? How could I save that baby's life? And I think that's a question that we get asked a lot or we ask a lot in our heads, how do you save a life? There, the Frey wrote a song uh, many years ago uh, called How to Save a Life, and the, the guy wrote the song after he'd been on the phone with his friend, and his friend was struggling. He said, I'll talk to you tomorrow, hung up, and his friend committed suicide that night. And so he wrote those songs. If I'd have stayed up all night, maybe I'd have known how to save a life. And, and we're still asking that question today. And, and I think we look at it in so many different angles and things. How do you save a life? And I think the best place to look at the answer for that is in God's Word. And that's where we're going to dig in. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Mark chapter 2, page 884 in, in my Bible, maybe not yours. Um, but uh, we'll start with verse 1. It's a good place to start. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, now, I'm not going to stop this often with the whole thing, but I want you to take note of that. It said, once again, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, meaning he had been there before. You can read chapter 1. He had just been there. He's returning. That's important later in our story. But uh, he again entered Capernaum. The people heard he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. So 
again, picture what's going on in this story. Now, for me, I, I was not a reader growing up. I'd, I'd show me the movie or tell me about it. I didn't like to read, especially the Bible, because there's no pictures um, except at the very end, and those are just maps, and those are boring. And so I wanted better pictures than that. But so I, reading was never a great thing for me. And, and I was challenged one day by a guy because I looked at the Bible as a history book. And he said, Alan, you've got to stop looking at the Bible as a history book and start looking at it as a love letter. Well, that changes. Someone wrote me a love letter. I'm going to read that. That's kind of interesting. And, um, and then he said this. He said, take the stories that are there and put yourself in them and, and make the story come alive. Don't read it as a, some, some history book that's telling some story. It's a book that's written. It's a love letter to us, and every story in it communicates God's love for us if we'll be willing to look. And that was a great challenge for me to do that. So in my mind, as I'm reading stories, I start jumping in. I put on my man dress and my man sandals from biblical times, and I'm in the story. And I, I challenge you to join me in this story and figure out who do you connect with in this story. There's many characters that we'll see in this story. Who do you most connect with? Because I want you to think about that at the end as we go through this story and see it. And so they're in church. So, so picture, they're having, there's in this house, and it said, so many gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door. This is standing room only. If you notice that when Jesus shows up places, he draws a crowd. It's amazing how he does that. Because he's not asking us to be religious, he's asking us to be in a relationship. And we too often get caught up that we need to go to church. Can I tell you this, and I believe this with all my heart, if our goal is to raise people up so that they go to church, we have failed them. Our goal should be to raise people up so that they be the church. See, the church is not this building. We're the church. And church happens everywhere we go. And if we limit it to a building, we are limiting God. And He is not to be limited. He is unlimited. And so here in this place, in this house, it's standing room only. So get a picture of it. There's no AC People are sticking their heads in the windows. The doors are packed. It's jammed in there. Everybody's probably sweating this kind of stuff. It smells like some great boys at youth camp. And they're all just hanging out in there. See, so you, you know, picture with me what's going on. But it was worth it because they're hearing Jesus. Like, they were willing to be uncomfortable so they could hear from Jesus. And, and so often we're not. If the AC's not working or the music's not right, we leave. Those aren't things that that are Jesus. We need to hear Jesus. And so it says that they gathered, and there was not even room, uh, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. He is, he is doing church. They are having a great time, and he's preaching. Now, here's what goes on. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic. All right, now, for me, one of the frustrations about the Bible is this. It doesn't give me all the details. Like, I want more details. As I look at the Word, I read these stories, and I want more details. And so when I get to heaven, I've got a list of things. I'm like, God, let's pull out the DVR. I need you to go to this story because I want to see what happened. Like the whole Jonah thing, uh, how does a whale puke somebody? I think that's cool. Like, how does he land on the beach? There's better ways to get to a beach than a whale, right? Like, so I, I want to see these stories. I want to see the fire fall and burn up all the stuff. I want to see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come walking out of that, and the faces on those guys going, they didn't burn up. Like, I want to see that stuff. And here's one of those stories that doesn't give us all the details, and so we have to fill it in in my head. And I, it's a dangerous place to go there, but I'm going to let you in my head for just a minute in this thing. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic. Okay, all we know is that Jesus is preaching, the place is full, they're looking in the windows, trying to figure it out, and everybody's watching, and some guys show up with a paralyzed guy. How did they get there? Where was this guy? We know he was paralyzed. How old was he? That he'd been paralyzed his whole life. Did he have a donkey accident and it caused paralysis? I don't know what happened to him. I just know he's paralyzed and some guys brought him. How did they get him there? 
Was he five miles away? Was he at the house next door? So it was just an easy trip? I don't know these details. They probably carried him. They brought him to him. Like, did they get a mat and they put two poles in it? And like, they went hunting and they're walking with him to Jesus and he's there. Notice he never says a word this whole story. I don't know if his mouth is paralyzed or he's paralyzed from the neck down. We don't know that, but we know that these guys got him. Whose idea was it? Who woke up and said, hey, let's get the paralyzed guy? He didn't even have a name. He's just known for his affliction. Isn't that terrible? Hey, it's Tim the Zit. Like, wouldn't that be, that's what he's known for? Like, no, we don't want to be known by the negative things, but this is the paralyzed guy. That's what he is, right? And, and somebody decided, hey, let's get some guys and carry this guy to Jesus. We hear he's in town. Let's do what it takes to get him over there. And some other guys are like, all right, I don't have anything else to do. Let's go. And they grab the corners of the mat or they do whatever, and they, four of them carry. So there's a group of them, and four of them are carrying him, right? So they get there. They carry by four of them. So there's a group, four of them. Picture this in your head. However you want to visualize that is fantastic. So they brought him, four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they left him and went to Wendy's and got, no, wait, that's not in the Bible. I'm sorry. But that would be what we would do so often. Man, I tried. I got you close. You can figure it out from here. We even yelled, paralyzed guy coming through. There was just no room. So we just kind of left him there. You're going to lay somewhere anyway. Just go ahead and lay here. There's more people. You have a better chance to get money and food maybe. Who knows? Like it'd be easy just to stop there. They didn't. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof. (laughs) Wait a minute. We're missing more details. We have him. He shows up there and the next thing he's on the roof. How did he get there? Like, how do you get that guy to the roof? Like, all right, grab his legs. One. Two. Like, let's just get him. He's paralyzed. He's not going to feel nothing. So, whew, throw him up there, right? He'll bounce and we'll get... Like, uh, probably not. Um, but culture in that time, uh, architecture in that time, most houses were built almost like stairs. And so there would probably be a way that they could get two guys and hand him up the stairs and climb. Uh, just more fun to think about throwing him up there. But, but they got him to the roof somehow. It was work to get him there. It wasn't an easy task. He's not helping them. He is literally just dead weight, and they have to get him from the ground to the roof above Jesus. And so that's where they land. They get him there. They got him from his house or wherever he was laying. They got him through the streets to this house where Jesus was at. Then they got him to the roof, and they still can't see Jesus, but they're up there. Because of the crowd, they, 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 uh, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, And after digging through it, like, oh my gosh, what was Jesus thinking? Because he's God, so he knows everything, right? So he's there preaching, and he's giving it, and he's telling them, and he's telling all this stuff, and his mind's probably thinking, something weird's about to happen, these people are going to be crazy, it's going to be awesome. And all of a sudden, the crowd probably hears this on the roof, like there's an animal up there, someone is finna get us, right? And they hear, and then maybe little pieces of the the roof start falling on Jesus, or he's dodging them, because he knows it's coming, because he's God. And so he's like, I'm going to walk over here for a second. Now I'm going to walk over here for a second. So he's watching out, and it's falling down on the ground. And all of a sudden, there's a little hole, and some light shoots through. And everybody's looking like, where did that come from? And Jesus like, this is going to get good. Like, I'm telling you, like, did he stop teaching at that time just to watch the hole get bigger? Did he keep preaching while the hole got bigger? Is the building committee in the back going, well, you got an issue back here. We need to talk about Like, I don't know what's happening, but they're not excited about that. And so the roof is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The hole is getting bigger, right? And it says... It says they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, so now they got this hole up there. How big is that hole? Because I'm sure the crowd is watching this. Pieces are falling through. They're digging this stuff out. And then all of a sudden, there's just these four heads going. 
And Jesus is like, oh. And the crowd's looking up, and these guys are like this. And they're looking like this. Like, this is a great picture to me that they're there. Now, it says, after they dug this hole in the roof, um, uh, because they got a hole in the roof, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. How did they do that? Like, how big was this hole? Were they laying there, and everybody grabbed a corner? And they're like, Jesus! Coming in. Like, was it two stories, three stories? I don't know. How far is this drop going to be? They tie a rope to it on. Was the hole, like, small? And they rolled him up like a burrito and went, boom, Jesus, catch. You're God. Boom, boom, Jesus, catch. Like, I don't know how it happened. I'm not sure the details of it, but I'm fascinated to see it. It's probably a whole lot simpler than I'm making it out to be, but I have a lot of fun thinking about it. But there's a hole, and they lower the guy to Jesus, and he hasn't said a word yet. And everybody's watching him. Do you want to be stared at when you're in a bad condition? But they did it. They brought him, cut a hole in the roof. They lower him down to Jesus. And he's laying there on the ground. Everybody's looking at him. Everybody's looking at Jesus. His buddies are up in the roof look, looking down like this, right? And so they're there. And it says this. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. When he saw whose faith? The paralyzed guy? Or the four friends? The four friends. When he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed guy. Like, think about that situation that's there. That's pretty significant. So he says, when he saw their faith, he says to the paralyzed guy, and look what he says to him. The very first words out of his mouth is this, son. See, now, Mark, in writing this book, calls him the paralyzed guy. When Jesus encounters him, he calls him son. He did not identify him by his difficulty. He did not identify him because of his physical condition. He did not identify him because of his past, whether it was his mistakes or someone else's mistakes that did it. Think about that paralyzed guy. What if, just play the what if game with me for a second. What if that paralyzed guy was paralyzed because he fell off a roof and his friends are taking him back up on a roof? You think that didn't scare him? Can I tell you that sometimes will Jesus will take you back to your hurt so he can heal you? I'll tell you a quick story about that. When my son was just a little boy, um, we were down at my mom's house for Christmas, and she has a little step down from the dining room to the living room, and he was brushing his teeth, you know, and he was wobbling around because he's like, rrr, rrr. Um, he still walks like that, but um, walking around, and he didn't see the step there, so he steps down and stabs himself in the throat with his toothbrush right there, and, um, and so we're like, just go to bed, and, um, and so we put him in bed, and he's fine. He starts throwing up. We bring him down. We try to give him some Pedialyte, whatever, throws up some more. This happens two or three times. Like, okay, this joker's getting dehydrated. we got to do something. So we take him to the emergency clinic, whatever, the, the urgent care, and we go in there, and they shine the light. And sure enough, he had cut his throat with his toothbrush, and blood was going down. Well, we're not made to swallow blood, so it was coming back up, whatever, and that, that's what it was. And he said, he's dehydrated. We're going to have to give him an IV. Like, okay. And you got to think now, he's one and a half or so, um, and, and he's, he's laying there. He goes, Dad, we need you to hold him so we can put the IV in him. And so I'm like, all right, I do this. Not thinking, I'm just like, this is what we're supposed to do. So I grab my son, I hold him, and that doctor jabs a needle in his arm, and all he does is look at me like, Dad, why are you letting someone hurt me? You're supposed to help me. You're supposed to protect me. You're not supposed to let people hurt me. Now, he wasn't saying all that. It was just the tears flowing from his eyes that were saying that to me. And I had to let someone hurt my son because I knew it was the only way he's going to get better. See, we think that, that sometimes bad things are are bad when they're really being used by God to help us heal. So I don't know this guy's story. I don't know how he got paralyzed, but it wouldn't surprise me in God's way of doing things that maybe he fell off a roof and he was a carpenter, paralyzed, and now they put him right back on a roof so he could get to Jesus. But he's lowered and he says, son. That's what he called him, son. 
You're part of my family. I'm not going to define you by your condition. I'm going to define you by who you belong to. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And probably guy's like, great, is it going to help me walk? Because I'm still laying here. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These teachers of the law, these, these pastors that thought they know everything, they're in control. And you've already messed up our building, and now you're going to pay for that. And I've got names now. I can write those jokers. You cut a hole in our roof, and I'm, you're going to charge. I'm going to pay your parents. Like, this is what's happening in that. And they are upset because he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this guy think he is? And they're thinking these things. They were thinking them to themselves. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Uh Uh-oh, that's a scary verse in Scripture to me. See, we think as long as we keep it inside, God doesn't know. Wrong. He knows our thoughts. He knows what's going on in our heart. We can't hide that stuff from him. We can hide it from other people. We can't hide it from God. He knew what they were thinking. That's why he tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ because there's the battle for our mind going on. And here it was. He knew what was happening. So he knew what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? And doesn't give them a chance to answer. I love how Jesus just handles this. Why are you thinking these things? Never mind. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? So he asked another question. Why are you thinking these things? Forget it. What do you think is easier, get up your mat and walk, or forgive your sins? Never mind. Don't answer that either. This is awesome that he just totally asks questions and doesn't let them answer. Um, or to say that, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, dot, dot, dot. He's like, but you may know that the man, Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. You know what? I'm tired of talking to you. I asked you two questions. You didn't answer either one of them. I'm making a statement. I'm cutting you off. I'm done with you guys. You're all idiots anyway, so here's what we're going to do. He turns to the paralytic. He says, I tell you, so everybody's now listening to this, and he's speaking to the paralyzed guy down here. I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. All right, now this is a physical thing here. Like, I can't really tell. You can say, ah, your sins are forgiven. That's an internal thing. But, you know, I don't really know if that really happened. But now you're going to say, get up, take up your mat. I can see if that's going to happen. I can see that. And the thing about it is, for us, we put so much value in what is seen when God says true faith is in what is unseen. We've got to get away from putting so much value on temporary things. Because he's asking the question, what's more important, the temporary of being able to walk or the eternal of being forgiven? See, and we put value on the physical healing and not on the eternal. I think we spend a lot of time praying more people out of heaven than into heaven. Because we pray for the sick and we pray for the hurting that they don't die. But are we praying for those that are spiritually dying that they wouldn't die? We've got to be careful what we value. We've got to be careful what we're going to put that stock in. And Jesus called them out on it. He went to the most important thing first. Son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, it's blasphemy. You can't. All right, you want me to prove it? I'll show you. Get up. Take up your mat. Go home. Look what happens. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. I want to know details. I want to know what happened. He's laying there. Are his legs shriveled or his arms shriveled? And all of a sudden, he's like the Hulk. And all of a sudden, he's strong again. Like, did he have this feeling come down his spine? Like, woo, I'm healed, you know? And have that feel because he's no feeling. He's paralyzed. Like, let's not forget the physical condition is still bad for him. And Jesus says, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Like, that's what I want you to do. And all of a sudden, he was able to do it. The muscles came back. The strength came back. The blood flow was back. And he's up on his feet. And I'm sure he stood up and went, man, I'm tired. Let me take a nap and lay back down. What do you think he did? We don't know. Give me the details. 
He went home. Was he married? Did he have kids? I don't know. What if he was? What if he walks home and he opens the door? Honey, I'm home. Woo. Like, what is that, right? What? And what if he had kids? Dad, you're so tall. Right? Because he's laying down all the time. I mean, think about this response of his family. What about the first time he grabs his kids and holds them, throws them in the air, dances with his wife? Think about the things that changed in his life because of what Jesus did. The stories that are going to be told. It's still being told today from the Scriptures. What an amazing testimony that this guy who we never find out his name, we just know he was paralyzed and now he's healed. That he's a son of God because God called him and said, you're my son, get up, take up your mat and go home. Your sins are forgiven. Your temporary is taken care of and your eternal is taken care of because he is God of both. And he took care of that situation and he walked out. And that's just a cool thing. And I love you. Like, I've been stared at this whole time. Like, he never says a word, the whole thing. But I'm sure he just hated the fact that he was the center of attention. Hole dug in the ceiling, dropped down to Jesus. They have this big argument with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they drop him down. And then he's healed. He's like, yep, I'm out. Deuces. Here we go. And he walks out of that room because he is done being in that place. He's got a new life that's ready to be lived. So what happens next? It says, he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. So what is the this that they'd never seen anything like? The paralyzed guy got up and walked. Rewind, verse 1, he came back to Capernaum, right? This wasn't the first time. Read chapter 1, you go back there, there's all kinds of healings. There's all kinds of miracles that take place in Capernaum. This is not the first time he healed someone. Not the first time he cast demons out. Not the first time he'd done some amazing things in people's lives. They knew it. It's part of the reason they showed up. And now they go, we've never seen anything like this. Yes, you have. You, you saw it just a few weeks ago when he was here before. So what is the this that amazed them so much? We've never seen anything like this. Can I argue that this is the faith of those four guys? Like all the people said, I've never seen faith from someone else that has the power to help someone else. See, we think that we're given faith so we can be strong ourselves. We're given faith so we can help others. When we put on the full armor of God, right? Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, which is the first piece or you can't fight with your pants down. So just know that truth always starts. But it gives us the shield of, talk to me. Anybody know? Huh? Shield of faith. Shield of faith. Now, when we think about a shield, we think about Captain America, right? His round, that's what we first come to. A shield in biblical times went from head to toe. It would, it would be your whole body. There would be a slit that you could look out. Because they weren't fighting cannons and all those kind of things. They were fighting spears and, and arrows and that kind of thing. So they had these shields. And you would literally hold your shield. You could see through it here. And, and I'm good. Now, I'm not good if I get attacked from anywhere else, but I'm good. So what I would do, I would be standing next to my other guy, standing next to my other guy. So the entire battalion, let's say 10 across, are all standing there like this. Well, they're going to shoot the arrows over you. So guys 2 through 10 in the back, they hold their shields up here. The guys on the side, they hold their shield here. They hold their shield here. Now it's literally a marching box that cannot be penetrated. Because my shield is going to protect me, but it's also going to protect you. And your shield is going to protect me. See, the thing is, with our shields of faith, they change in size a lot because of circumstances in our life. Are you someone that whenever your friend, your neighbor, your enemy... And their, their shield of faith is small, can stand behind yours? Do you have people in your life who have a big shield of faith that you can stand behind when yours starts to shrink? 
Because Jesus said, I've never seen, or these people said, I've never seen anything like this. The healing was not the amazing thing. The faith of those guys was the amazing thing. And, and they, because of their faith, their persistence of not giving up, that's the one. Here's, here's what I think too. And, and this is just my youth pastor brain. Uh, theologians or historians are, are divided on this if you look at it. But I believe that that group of guys that brought the guy, I believe they were teenagers. That's what I believe. I mean, call them men, but, you know, you're 13, you become a man, rite of passage, those guys. I believe it was teenagers. Because I believe old guys would be like, nah, he's too far gone. But teenagers are like, God can do anything, let's go. And they grabbed him up, they dug a hole in the roof, which is, you know, they enjoy doing that too, damaging things. In the name of Jesus, let's play paintball in the church in the name of Jesus. Um, and so dig a hole, put him down. Like, I believe it was teenagers that said, we will not let anything stop us. We're going to go. We're going to get there. And I, and I love that. And I love that teenagers. Can I tell you, you need to love your teenagers well. You need to empower them. They're not the future of the church. They are the church. And it's time for us to give them that opportunity to rise up and do some great things in the name of the Lord because they will. I will tell you this. I've been in youth ministry a long time, and I believe this to be true 100% of the time. Teenagers will gravitate to the person in the room, the oldest person in the room that will take them seriously. See, you think, well, we need all these young guys to be in student ministry. We know. Teenagers will gravitate to the oldest person in the room that will take them serious because adults don't always take them serious. Because we believe that they're less than. They will live down to any expectation you put on them. You want to tell them they're entitled and lazy in video games? They'll go do that if that's what you think they'll do. But if you tell them they can change the world, they'll do that. That's what teenagers are. They are moldable and shapeable, and they are the energy and the passion that can go make a difference. Let's empower them. And I believe it was teenagers. Those are my people. And I believe it was them that brought this guy and said, we're going to get them there. And they did, and it amazed them all. They said, we've never seen anything like, we've never seen faith like this. My prayer is that Grace Bible Church would be a church where people go, I've never seen faith like that. I've never seen a group of people who believe in the power of God and what he can do to transform lives on this planet and for eternity. That's what I want to see happen. That's what I pray for my youth group all the time. That's what I pray for students and for adults around the world, that they would have that kind of faith that's amazing. It's amazing, not because of our strength, but because of his. Let me, let me finish the story. Um, that little girl that, uh, that lost that baby, four years later, um, uh, she had another baby. And, uh, and that baby actually was born with spinal meningitis, um, braces on his legs for the first two years of his life. Um, and, and this girl did not know how to love because she kept thinking, this one's going to die too. So she was a nurse. She was a provider, not, not a professional nurse, but that was her, her role. She just wanted to make sure that physically this kid was okay. And that's it. Had, had another baby there. Um, her husband ended up getting a job and, and had a secretary. And one day, this girl was talking to her husband's secretary. They were having a conversation. And, uh, and it came up that she had lost that baby girl. And the secretary said, you know, you can, you can see that baby again. And that girl said, no, no, I can't. I, that baby's dead. I've never seen the baby. I never got to hold her. No, no, I'm telling you, you can see the baby again. And told her about Jesus. And she gave her life to Jesus. Six months later, her husband gave her life to Jesus. Why is that story important that I tell you? Because that girl is my mom. And that's her story. And my dad stayed with her through all this after his aunt said, she's trash, she's worthless, she'll bring you down. This beaten down little girl that ran away from abuse at home, ran away from abuse of her first husband, ran away, thought sex would be the answer for that. And ultimately, someone, my dad's secretary, Maxine Andre, Loved my mom enough to tell her about Jesus. 
And I was the kid with spinal meningitis and my legs and braces the first two years of my life. Do I remember that time? No, I've seen pictures. All I can remember is my mom loving me. All I can remember is her doing everything she could. I remember her leading me to Christ in our backyard at backyard Bible clubs that our church did in our neighborhood. That's what I remember about her. She's not the broken, hurting little girl. She's one that found the power of Jesus and hope within him. And someone loved her enough to take that broken, worthless, useless person. I graduated high school before my mom did. She got her GED the year after I graduated because she was spending her time pouring into her boys, me and my little brother. She's a hero to me. Is she perfect? No. But Maxine Andre is a hero to me because she loved my mom enough to tell her about Jesus. And then my dad. And then I got to be raised in a church. And I got to hear about Jesus my whole life. I started having a drug problem, man. I got drugged to church every time the doors were open. (laughs) But here I am today getting the chance to proclaim the gospel to you and share that with you. So the question, I guess, that I have for you is this. Who in that story do you relate to? Who is it that you're connecting with? Are you the paralyzed guy because you're paralyzed with an addiction or a sin issue or a hidden thing that no one knows about because you're ashamed of it and so you just wallow in your own instead of asking for help on that? Come to Jesus. Are you the, are you the four guys in that group that says, you know what, there's some people that we need to get to Jesus and that may mean going and giving them a ride next Sunday to get here or to next Bible study or to take them to lunch and share the gospel or have them over to your house for coffee and share the gospel. Tell your story. Like, does that need to happen? Maybe you're the big crowd that's going, I have a little bitty shield of faith and I need mine to get bigger. I'm amazed at someone else's faith, but I want to have the kind of faith that someone else can stand behind my shield when they need it because I need people to stand behind their shield sometimes. Like, I don't know who you're connecting to in the story, but we're all part of it. And that's where it is. So the question we started with is this, how do you save a life? And here's the answer, simply from scriptures, you do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus. It may be uncomfortable. You may get made fun of. It may cost you financially. It may cost you time-wise. It may cost you some things. But you do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus and you don't give up because it gets hard, because it gets crowded, because you don't have an easy path. There may be a big crowd blocking the way. You've got to get to the roof. Then you've got to dig a hole. Then you've got to lower them down. I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm telling you, eternity matters enough that we do what it takes to get people to Jesus. Are we willing to do that? So who are you? Where's your faith? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get people to Jesus? Because that's what it's going to take if we're going to see our culture change for Christ and not continue to spiral downward. So let's do it together. Let's lock arms as the body of Christ. Let's hold up our shields together, some big, some small, some growing big, some shrinking, but we're going to get together and everybody gets stronger. And we go make a difference and we will declare the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will trust him with that. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to play. You can do what you need to do. If you need to go pray with someone, do it. If you want to come here and pray, do it. Uh, If you want to talk to someone, do it. You'll have a chance for that. But I just want to pray and allow you to take inventory of what God has said to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible, incredible, incredible love for us that, that has conquered all. It beat death. God, it beat death. It can beat anything we face. And I thank you for the story of this paralyzed guy. I thank you for the the four friends that carried him to you and did whatever it took. I thank you that they were willing to risk financial issues because they dug a hole in a roof. They'd have to repair it. God, I thank you that, that their faith was strong enough to amaze other people for your glory. So God, help us to connect with this story and, and be who you've called us to be and do what you've called us to do and quit making excuses and start making a difference. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.